This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, musician siblings Lauren, David, and Sean Carpenter. Star solo violist David, along with his brother Sean and his sister Lauren, form a trio that electrifies audiences the world over. Far from a traditional only musical route and life, the siblings founded a chamber orchestra in New York City, the Salome Chamber Ensemble, which has put on concerts and events featuring everyone from Joshua Bell to John Legend. In addition to their performing careers, they run a rare musical instrument business, Carpenter Fine Violins, which places priceless instruments in good and safe hands for years to come. As you will hear, we know each other well, and I didn't predict that I would have a hard time finding things to talk about with these dynamic and multi-layered people. I'm truly thrilled to welcome my dear friends and great colleagues, Lauren, David, and Sean Carpenter, to this program. Everybody wants to know always about where the initial passion came from. So, so Sean, you're the oldest. So, so were you the trailblazer here? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I started at the age of five or six, five and a half, and I think it's because my mom's one of her best friends' son uh, started in Suzuki. So we all thought it was a good idea to do something like this, completely by happenstance and something that was off the cuff because, but I, I think what happened is I, I, I heard the violin at a very early age and I said, you know, this is I, I love the sound of the inch of the violin. So in a way it was, it wasn't just like a self, uh, you know, imposed uh, unilateral decision on the part of my mom to do that, but I actually wanted to do it myself. So you, I think there, there has to be an initiative uh, from the individual themselves to say, you know what, I want to play the violin or the piano. So yeah, I, I was, and it became a domino effect because it was, it was also easier for my mom to transport three small violins than a cello or piano. You know, pianos. We didn't have a piano in the house at the time. So uh, yeah, so it, it was just a hobby, and then it just—it it never really became serious as a profession, I'd say, because we always were doing academics. My mom was a, a teacher; was a teacher. She's retired now. Um, so it, it was always something that we saw as a supplement. So that we didn't, you know, watch too much TV in the beginning, but then became more serious. I think by the age of, you know, 14, 15, I was, I was getting more into just playing the violin. So, yeah. And now at the age of 35, we're definitely watching more TV. <laughs> so I, I, I was going to say that's the longest Sean has ever talked without being interrupted. I'm uh, Lauren, jump, jump, jump in, say something. <laughs> <laughs> I was tempted, Daniel, because I was—I was, my my initial thought was: Is Daniel asking about us getting into music as a performance or getting into um, the violin trading business? So, um, so I'm glad Sean started with the performance of, of music, and and of, of course, slowly getting into you know the collectibles. Business. By the way, Daniel, how are you doing after our trip in Chile, Patagonia, or mm-hmm. around for the Salome <laughs> and then? Uh, and how, now corn. How are you holding up? <laughs> Let's put it this way. I, I look back at the pictures of those Chilean fjords a lot. <laughs> Join the club. We, 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 uh, we can't wait to get back on uh, MS Europa 2. Unbelievable. Uh, and, and we were always talking. We're like, this is like better conditions to play a concert. It was so smooth on those fjords. It's better conditions to play a concert than any hall in the world. <laughs> uh, 
it's true. Um, so, okay, so so Sean, he likes the sound of the violin. He's playing. And then, what, David and Lauren have to jump on the bandwagon. But but when did it become something more like, oh, this this is fun to do, Suzuki and a mom's friend and everything. And, and it became serious. And, and you looked around at each other and you thought, wow, this music thing is really great. There's a lot of passion. It's a great world. Yeah, I think I think there was kind of an inflection point. Um, you know, the the thing is, I think my mom, uh, to be quite honest, was just trying to get us away from doing kind of what, what the typical kids would be doing at that age. Uh, even though we did play video games and we we played a lot of sports, um, she got us into the U.S. Open uh, tournaments uh, for for tennis, and we played USTA, and then we um, and then we played a lot of basketball. US um, we nobody was part of the U.S. Open program. Um, but the, you know, I think, I think the, the biggest thing for her was just to get us like a well-rounded education as well and to be interested in culture, go to the museums, go to, um, you know, sports venues and everything that we could. And, and this was on a teacher salary. My, my, my parents both were, um, you know, teachers and, and going through a lot, uh, to, to get us to where we needed to. And, um, and the days that we had Hans School Music and then Juilliard, um, we were on financial aid. So, so I think, the, I think it was more of like the struggle and, and to see how much she sacrificed of herself um, to get us where we were. And, and I think at the age of 15, 16 for me was the moment that um, it all clicked for me. And I, I said, you know what, I really do want to pursue music as a profession. And we had absolutely no idea um, what, what the future would hold. But, you know, we, we were all fortunate enough to, to go to the same university to study politics, to, um, you know, to have... Um, a well-rounded education and I think it, it kind of put everything in perspective when we started traveling and we, we started entering competitions and for us to just prepare mentally for those competitions and for us to to start uh, actually uh, getting prize money as well that was a big uh, thing for us because we, we were like wait a minute we could actually uh, win prize make money make a living make a living from, uh, from, from entering this competition so I think you know to be honest it, it was all a, a beautiful kind of uh, cause and effect and, and, uh, and kind of like our, our world was opened up into a new world once we started going to the Verbier Festival and Academia Kijiana to study with Boris Falcon and, and Yuri Bashmid and, um, and when we were about 15, 16, 17. And that's kind of when everything just really, you know, uh, it was like a jet propulsion into the music world, into competitions, into, um, you know, and then when we, when we had to Princeton, um, Lauren and Sean both won the concerto competition there and, and played uh, the solo. Yeah, I know, me too, but, but, you know, I think, I think so, so for us, it was kind of this, um, you know, we, we learned from each other. Uh, Sean was always kind of the, um, the teacher of the family. If I, if I would be playing in the other room, uh, Lauren would, would also hear, she, they would come barging in to me and say, hey, David, what the hell are you playing? Um, you know, so I, I think Your fingerings are awful. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that doesn't happen now? So so I think I think for for us it was always like kind of a, a joy. It was never a, a push um, or uh, it was it was never a contrived uh, kind of. No, it, it was it was a way for us to become more disciplined and focused in all of our endeavors. I would say, and you know, music has a way of of doing it in a very I would say therapeutic way. Um, so if you know, if, if, which is one of the reasons that a lot of parents put their children into you know, some type of performing arts, right? So if, if it's dance, if it's acting, if it's music, you know, it has, it has a way of, of, of focusing it. And actually Princeton, um, at the time that we were there and, and then, and, and, and after we left, 
um, they made it their goal to, they made it a, a big objective to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into the arts because their thesis, their fundamental uh, notion was that the, you know, the students who are very heavily invested in the arts at Princeton are usually the ones that are going to become the valedictorians or salutatorians or like the top 10% of their class. And it's kind of correct, right? Like people who are practicing one to two hours a day or members of the orchestra or uh, acapella group or the glee club, they're the ones who will put the same type of investment of energy and investment of passion into mathematics, into physics, into history or politics, whatever it was that they were studying. So um, yeah, so that, that's, that's our, that's the reason I think music has kind of kept us sane as well as, you know, driven us forward in whatever endeavors that we, that we do. So you, you brought up a lot of things, but I, I want to touch on one thing I've always explained to people and which is that I always felt that one reason I was always felt such kinship with the three of you is because I found something I talk about a lot that many musicians are frankly extremely limited and boring to talk to and all <laughs> and all they know how to talk about is music and there's a whole wide world out there and that so the the breadth of the education and the curiosity that the three of you have always really connected with me because it's like yeah we we can talk about Beethoven but we can also talk about Eisenhower and his policies policies we can also talk about a Rembrandt uh talk about how important it is you think for a musician to be well-rounded and, and why it's important to have an education that goes beyond the notes. Yeah. So for the record, Daniel, that was not us who said that about the musicians. So just that's, uh, just, uh, just can you, uh, okay. That was me. And I just said it again. <laughs> so no, but the thing is, you know, to be honest, I, you know, there's so many musicians that we absolutely love and respect and we, we, we just have the, the utmost admiration for them. Um, it's a question of, you know, like where we see culture and kind of seeping into all different aspects of, of music and how we could all become well-rounded musicians is by is by going to the museum, is by learning about, um, you know, some of the great artists, the, the, the Dutch masters. I mean, but the, there are plenty of musicians who actually do know these things. And I think, um, you know, it, it's just a question of, for us, we got into the, the collectibles market, into the collectibles world by just knowing as much as we could possibly know about the particular artist. So if I'm looking for a, a piece by Lucas Cranach the Elder, I will do my absolute best research uh, to go to all the museums around the world to see what's out there, to see the quality that the museums are looking for, and say when, I, when I'm trying to make an educated guess as to you know, what, what piece to, to really purchase, you know, and I'll ask Christie Sotheby's, all the, the top auction companies in the, on, on, in the world, um, I will get my own thesis of, of what to look for, what to, to find, and what the best quality piece is. If it's that, or uh, looking at Egyptian Ushaptis, or, you know, learning the text of the, the hieroglyphics um, of, you know, the ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian, um, you know, culture. culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's something that's, that's just so beautiful, and it kind of makes us go on an expedition around the world to have a purpose, to have a, um, you know, a, a central point as to say, okay, if I'm, if I'm collecting anything, I'm going to learn as much as I can about that particular, you know, space. So I think for us, it's just being, becoming more inquisitive, becoming more um, adept to, to different cultures, to learning about, you know, same, same with music as well. I mean, it's just looking at uh, a different composer or, you know, great composers from Turkey, from, um, all parts of the world and, and looking at their music and how their culture influences them. It's just, it's so, yeah. yeah, it's kind of all connected then. And I think the problem is that 
I'm not a, not saying anything bad about conservatories, but you know, even the top conservatories in the United States, uh, they kind of pigeonhole, uh, you know, music and music performance into one thing, and then they could be there. There should be more cross pollination amongst you know some of the liberal arts. Uh, I originally was uh, uh, was going to do a, a joint degree at, at Columbia University and at Juilliard, and it's great. It's great that school, schools like that have uh, these kind of programs. Yeah, that 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 if somebody wants to study liberal arts or classical Greek and Roman uh, antiquities and Roman law, they could do that, take a course in that, and then also you know study music performance. So. That I think is probably the best thing if, if somebody really wants to, uh, because in, in some ways I do think that you can hear it with certain players that that have a good sense of not just the music but something deeper about you know either the period performance or they understand the you know the kind of the the history and the era that the music is composed in, and so it does give a good basis. Besides just the technical aspect of learning the violin or the cello, and I think that fundamentally, like people who are who are more um, who are uh, more well-rounded from an educational background are are more inspired, and that I think comes through in a performance when they play. You know, when someone is playing because you know it's their job, they need to do it for their living. You know, of course, that's you know that it is what it is. But if someone's doing it because they love it, because they're inspired by what they're playing. You know that is that's when the really special performances uh, happen, and I think, as Sean said, everything is connected now. And I think during COVID, I mean, we're seeing this more than ever. The world is connected, and and classical music, the performing arts, doesn't exist. They, they don't exist in a vacuum, right? So it's it, it's imperative that you know classical musicians know about the world. They have to know how to adapt to the current the current environment, the current situation. Something Sean alluded to a minute ago was so interesting because it reminded me of of what the great conductor, conductor we all admire, Arturo Toscanini, always spoke about, which was uh, how someone's whole culture came out in their playing or their conducting or their singing, how the books you've read, the the paintings you've seen. Linda Ronstadt uh, spoke about this recently as well. The, The articles you've read, she was on, Linda Ronstadt was on this program a few weeks ago, and uh she said the same thing, how it, it all contributes to the playing. And that's when I see Sean do a Mendelssohn or, or, or a Brahms, I, I, I see and I hear the passion that, that you can't make up. You know, you, you can't fake passion, right? Exactly. No, I, I appreciate that, Dan. And, you know, uh, just talking about the cross, you know, in industries. And uh, it, I think what happens is that a lot of times we have this thing called specialization, right? Everyone wants to specialize and one thing vocational training yeah and and i think it has its benefits it has it definitely has its benefits and you know if you want to be an accountant and want to be the best accountant you know it, it's good to just good to focus on that but at the same time if you want to learn about the arts or about music or something else it, it, it helps you as a person right i mean and i think for us uh the reason we did kind of Okay, sidestep a little bit into the business side, although we don't really call it the business because I think that anyone who's successful in business has to really love what they're doing. You know, you could either be a stock trader, you can be a an engineer, you can be a Bitcoin uh, miner. You know, you could be somebody a sports somebody. <laughs> you know, a, so an, a professional athlete. And if you if you really love what you're doing, it, it shows. And 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 I think 
for us, uh, we I, I started in, in tandem with, with playing the violin. I wanted to learn about violins themselves, right? So when I was really young, my mom would take me around all the different dealers uh, all throughout you know the United States. And so kind of by happenstance, again, I, I was just kind of introduced into the uh, the, the world of antique, antique musical instruments. Let me just pause you quickly, Sean, because I, I, you're getting right to the core of, of, of what a lot of people want to hear about. What is a Stradivari violin? Why is it special? Speak to the broadest audience you can, because remember, it's not musicians per se who listen to this show. Why a Stradivari? Sure. So Antonio Stradivari, you know, I would say is one of the was one of the greatest uh, engineers uh, of all time, right? So you have Da Vinci, and then and and you know producing many different feats in, in different areas. And Stradivari was the technician of the acoustical realm because he had an intuitive sense of what a violin should sound like and, what and, is, look, like. and look like, and which is being, uh, which has not been unmatched uh, till this day. So all the greatest violin makers are just making pretty much models on Stradivari and the other Great, the greatest violin makers, Giuseppe Guarneri del Gesù, uh, who was also a contemporary. He, he lived a shorter life. He was 46 years old when he died in 1744. Antonio Stradivari was, I think, around 93 or 94 years old when he died in 1737. So those two were the two kind of the, the titans of their industries uh, uh, at the time. And uh, Stradivari was a more prolific maker in the sense that he had Sons and a whole, uh, you know, workshop and, and Luthier, which was uh, devoted to making a lot of instruments. Uh, Guarneri del Gesù was uh, from the Casa Guarneri, which was uh, much more limited in output. They were not as uh, financially uh, stable, as, you know, or, 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 or successful or famous. Yeah, like he, uh, Guarneri was more of the players, makers, uh, players, uh, violins that were. Uh, you know, produced for primarily Italians uh, at, at, in, in, you know, in local local musicians. Stradivari would actually get uh, uh, patrons from all different parts of Europe, uh, even from London, or people would come just to, to to buy a Stradivari instrument from all over Europe. So, yeah, I think I think those, you know, to to be around these instruments and to to have the honor to to even sell them is, is just, you know, it is a dream come true because when I was young, they were, it was almost untouchable to even play on a Stradivari. The fact that, you know, we, we created uh, in the past 10 years, we were celebrating our 10th, 10th anniversary this year, uh, that, that we're, you know, we've sold, you know, dozens of these instruments is just in, in, incredible. So we're, we're just incredibly honored to, to be around them, to be able to play on them. Did Stradivari come out of a vacuum? I mean, you, you say he sort of set the standard, but what, what tradition did it, he was? He was such a titan. He, he must have had predecessors, or was he sort of uh, a unicum? Yeah, well, I'd say the, the first of the great makers uh, uh, in the city of Cremona, which was kind of where the, the violin was born. I mean, it's a little bit of a... Uh, uh, people still are disputing uh, where the where the modern day uh, uh, shape form of the violin was either in, in Cremona or could it be in one of the other cities or in Brescia. Uh, but uh, Andrea Amati was the first maker. Uh, he was born in 1505. So now we're getting into almost Da Vinci, now this is Vinci uh, territory. Da, Vin, da Vinci territory. And if you actually go to the Met Museum, you'll see 
one of the uh, the Lehman collection, the Andrea Amati violin. I think it's made around 1550. I have a video on YouTube playing on that instrument, which is it's tuned down to Baroque uh, time. Yeah, I was playing a, a. This is funny because that violin was already over 100 years old when Bach uh, wrote his uh, Six Sonatas and Partitas. In 1720, so it's kind of funny to be playing on a violin that at the time was already over a century was a, old. Was an antique. <laughs> um, and uh, so he died in, he was born in 1505, he died in 1577 in Cremona. And um, yeah, so he was kind of the, what you can consider the, the first, the first of the great, you know, the first of the great violin makers of that time. But Stradivari obviously built upon that. And also Niccolo Amati, who's uh, Andrea Amati's uh, uh, son. And Niccolo, they're, they're saying was the, you know, there's no 100% proof on this, but that Stradivari was kind of the apprentice to Niccolo Amati um, in the 1600s. So, you know, I, I would say that if you look at some of the really early Stradivari violins that are made around 1660 or 1670, uh, the 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 influence from Niccolo Amati is very pre- present, there. And, and that's why Andrea Amati was known as the founding father. <laughs> so, yeah. are strads overvalued or undervalued? I I think this is this is something people wonder about. They they think, oh, it's it, it's fine for a Renoir or a Rembrandt, and then they say, but why is that violin so expensive? And the violins are fraction the cost of a great painting. Well, shouldn't violins, in in a sense, be much more expensive? Yeah, I mean, Daniel, the thing is. Um, they are essentially priceless. I mean, I think what's what's going on right now is that, um, especially with with the the rates of interest, where where you know the, the markets are um, and the top one percent uh, tile getting uh, much wealthier, you know, people are just realizing where do we park money? Where 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 are we going to see growth in the future? Um, and I think what's what's going on is that. You know, to a lot of people, these instruments are incredibly expensive. At one point, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, a lot of professional musicians, Isaac Perlman, Pekka Zuckerman, could really afford these instruments by playing concerts. They had, um, and you know, hand recordings. And, and made recordings. Yeah, the, I mean, the Carion, uh, you could imagine how much he, he made from just his recordings alone. Almost a billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know I, that. Really? Wow. <laughs> yes. It, 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 yes. Yeah, the the better part, almost a billion dollars, was his uh, recording legacy. That's why he. That's why he had his own yacht and uh, private, private jets. Jet. That's mm-hmm. pretty. That's pretty amazing. And he could actually. Uh, and he could pilot them. He could fly. I was actually the the other day. I was watching. There's a great. Well, there's a few, but there's a great one called Beauty as I See It. It's on YouTube. Documentary about the great Austrian conductor Herbert von Karajan, and it really is. A portrait of an intensely devoted, uh, yet yet hugely broad in his interests. I mean, super focused on music, but he could fly. He drove sports cars. You know, he was just an amazing man. So, so the way we look at it is, you know, let, let's be honest. If if you have a, a concert career in in today's time, right, you're you're playing uh, one hundred to two hundred concerts a year. Um, you're making on average, um, you know, a few thousand dollars and, you know, you have a great li- uh, living, right? After taxes, you're, you're going to be cut in half. Um, then you have extra, you know, things to pay, the travel, the extras, um, you know, the maintenance of your instruments, the insurance and everything like that. Um, we, we basically are saying, how is it possible for any musician to make it and, and to really um, afford something that's in the millions of dollars, Right. You're not. I mean, I think it's 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 basically it's been like that for for many many years. Yes, the the great 
like the Perlmans, like the, um, you know, the, the Zuckermans of the world, um, Katagorskis and, and, and all these greats, um, who also had some of the greatest instruments on the planet, um, also did probably have outside uh, funding and, and sponsors to buy these instruments on their behalf. And I think it, it really is something about like this investment philanthropy that, you know, to be honest, um, most musicians can't afford these instruments, even instruments in the hundreds of thousands. To buy a, a Camille today in the three to $500,000 uh, mark, um, it's going to be very difficult for any musician to afford this. And I, I think it, it's, it's something that we're kind of having a uh, existential crisis in, in terms of like the music world. Where is, where is, where's the next step? Like, where, where do we go from here? Because, um, you know, if you look at some of the great uh, collectors today, yes, they're kind of like these amateur violinists who have a great passion for music and, and they have a lot of money because, you know, they, they bought Tesla stock at, at, a, at a much lower rate. I mean, six times, um, you, if you, if you invested two years in Tesla stocks, you'd be up at least six times um, what you put in. And I think for a lot of people who, who understand this and, and, you know, are kind of amateur musicians who love their hobbyists and love instruments, they're the, the perfect people who are investing in these instruments. Because to be quite honest, Daniel, the, the only reason we really wanted to have a goal of making money is to afford Stradivarius. And we got, you know, we, we, we did it. We, we, we got um, to the, the point um, in which we finally could afford, you know, many Stradivarius and, and, and have a, a great collection. And I think this is, it's just about kind of the mentality that you, 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 you have and say, okay, what is, what is the intention? What is, what is the reason I want to become wealthy? You know, what is, what is the reason I want to do a particular project? And with these goals in mind, yes, musicians can accomplish, um, you know, something great because if we could do it, if we had, you know, basically a single uh, mother who put us through, um, you know, Princeton through financial aid and for us to have a lot of debt and then get out of it and then start a successful business, then, I, I, I wouldn't say a lot of people could do it because it, it was very difficult to get to where we, we are. But I'm sure if you if you really put your, your mind to it, anyone could accomplish this. I think going back to Daniel's original question, are Stradivari's considered or are they expensive um, in relation to things like uh, art pieces? You know, so, you know, of course, we've been very fortunate to be collectors of paintings, works of art, you know, by, for instance, Picasso, for instance. Why should the most expensive Picasso uh, sell at auction for close to $180 million while the most expensive uh, Stradivari violin publicly sold for $15.9 million, which was the Lady Blonde back in 2011, I believe. Um, but more recently, you know, violin sales have, have gone slightly above $20 million for Stradivarius. Is there kind of a, an equivalence of that? Why should the Stradivari, which is very, which is much more rare than uh, a Picasso painting, why should they be, you know, a tenth of the price of a great Picasso painting? You know, we really haven't come to terms with the fact that um, there really is no reason that a Stradivari, I mean, for us, we, the instruments are, have the added benefit of functionality. So it is a work of art. It is a piece of art. It is historically significant in that it's a work of uh, engineering as well. But it also it also it also works right and 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 has the added layer of producing something as beautiful and as universal as music as uh, and and music in all forms you don't just have to play classical music on a Stradivarius we've you know we've we've played a concert with John Legend you know and on with you know uh, and his yeah. music on a Stradivarius and, and there's a global appreciation and like a brand you know so 
you know, if you take a look at uh, some of the most successful tech companies in America, they have a brand, right? You know, Apple, Amazon, these are companies that are globally recognized as, as, as some of the greatest companies of, of all time. So I think with Stradivari, it's, it's now becoming a brand. We, we've actually been to Japan numerous times. The Japanese uh, started buying violins in the late 80s and 90s when their stock market peaked. And it's very funny that if you look at the Nikkei, the stock market in Japan, it's basically at where it was, uh, you know, been flat for decades (laughs) and uh, it hadn't really gone anywhere. So a lot of the Japanese and a lot of people now are beginning to see, well, you know, not they were looking at the investment side for instruments and they're saying, you know what, these are, these actually have held their value pretty, they've been pretty resilient. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I think that there's a global appeal to, to, to rare instruments, just like in art. I mean, obviously Picasso is a name that everyone in China or in Japan or in America knows who Picasso is. But, but uh, Picasso is also, also goes through experiences trends, right? In today's art world, you know, right now, some of the hotter artists are either living, you know, let's say uh, Mark Bradford is a fantastic artist uh, living in LA his works are right now going for more money than Stradivari violins are. Um, and Picasso prices are kind of a little bit, you know, kind of flat and stagnant um, because more people are getting into post-war contemporary art than they would be, for, you know, although I would say a great Picasso painting is going to always sell for a lot of money. Um, but with Stradivari, he is the ubiquitous master, right? No one, no one is going to challenge the fact that he was the greatest. I mean, Buenarius del Jesu was his contemporary, also great, but Stradivarius has kind of more of that, that, that Rolls-Royce gold seal um, than, than Del Jesu does. Um, but, you know, so, you know, going back to, going back to, to investments. Uh, Wait, what was the initial question? <laughs> well, the, actually, you, you know, you, you, Lauren reminded me of the initial question, which was about should a Stradivari be as valuable as a Rothko? As a Picasso, but 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 and and she partially answered answered it. She partially answered it. But but I I was going to, I was just going to interject that a part of the the thrill of a Strad is the connection to history that you feel when you're playing it. I mean, the three of you know that I'm very lucky. I've I've played on a number of the most famous Stradivari cellos, and it's not just that you have a great sound and you look at it and you say, wow, that's that's a beautiful looking instrument. But you, but you literally feel history. You're, you're holding history, and you feel it going through your fingers as you transmit the sound. That's true. That's true. And, and you know, if you take a violin like um, like the uh, Yasha Heifetz's Del Jesu, which is now in in, uh, in San Francisco, you hear part of you know part of his his sound comes through in the violin today. Yeah, or Gitlis, or some of the great violins. But more than that, I mean, these instruments were not only owned by the greatest musicians of the time, but they were also owned by the greatest industrialists. For instance, Henry Ford was an amateur violinist. He collected Stradivarius and Del Jesu violins that that are now sitting in his museum in Dearborn, Michigan. And uh, Goldman, Henry Goldman from Goldman Sachs, was also a collector of violins. The Medici family commissioned a set of, uh, a, a quartet of Strads uh, directly from Stradivarius. So, you know, as you said, it, it, the history, the provenance of these instruments are, come through in, in when you play them, when you, you know, when you have the pleasure of playing on them for people and sharing the music that they produce. 
Let me just ask very quickly, because you mentioned the great violinist Yasha Heifetz, and then also Ivry Gitlis, who's still living. Is he 100 now, or, or he's around 100, I believe? This is something that, that in particular, Sean and I always talk about when we, you know, we listen to old recordings or clips, or I send him a clip over social media. Wow, listen to this person. And, and it's sort of about the way string playing uh, especially violin playing, but also also cello, even singing and piano, but really string playing has changed over the years. And and how I, I always say, wow, Sean, listen to how, how quickly you can recognize Milstein or Heifetz or one of these people, you hear two notes or one note and you know it's them. How has playing changed? Do you think people around in the past recent decades have as much outward and overt and and brazen personality that they bring to music and to violent playing. You you've actually made that point several times. This is a great this is a great one, Dan. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think. What, are are you tired of me making that point? No, 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 no it's a great no, it's a great point. Uh, no, no, I, 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 I no, it's a it's a great. <laughs> no, it's, it's a, you're entirely correct. I mean, I think, uh, which is quite interesting because if you hear the old recordings. Uh, the recording technology today, obviously, is completely different than it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and uh, but, yeah, it's it's true. If you hear Zuckerman or even uh, living uh, great artists like Pinko Zuckerman and Isaac Coleman, they have a unique sound and a unique tone. You can tell their sound and uh, their tone in two seconds. And I feel uh, a lot of the players today, uh, they have kind of this kind of... Uh, universal or, or you know, reversion to the uh, mean. I mean, but I wouldn't say that. I mean, I would say like Anna Sophie Mutter, you know, you, Wenger up, you know, Joshua Bell, all of these guys, you know, when you, when you turn on the radio and, you know, Mendelssohn violin concerto comes up, you know, we're still pretty good about recognizing who it is. Yeah. I would say the, the kind of millennial generation, mm-hmm. you know, our, our, our ages, it's, you know, being younger, it's becoming a little bit more, mm-hmm. yeah, the reversion to me, it's, it's becoming more, yeah, universal. What's the word? Kind of to, to it's more, it's more about the image now, I think, than the actual sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, like with Joshua Bell, he has his own unique way of playing and sound. Uh, Mutter as well. Um, you know, I, you, people have a preference for one player over another, but you can say that they definitely have their own uh, imprint and style on on the music and and and, and the interpretation of the music. But, um, but but when but, you, when you're looking and listening to like let's say the finals of the Queen Elizabeth competition or the Vinyasi competition, you know the the, the exactly. I mean, a, a lot of musicians are you know the, the the styles, the the interpretations. They're not at least I find that you know I don't I don't hear anything new. That I don't hear an interpretation that is that is you know mind blowing and 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 life changing to me. And what's the reason for that? Do you think because I I I, I hear what you're saying i think it's pretty widely recognized but 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 is there a why is it you know one thing i i've always thought is that as people's recordings have become more available to everybody you can go on an app or on youtube on the internet and find 50 recordings of the beethoven concerto so so you hear so much that it all gets into you and you end up sounding like nothing or like a combination i i don't know it's, it seems like a hundred years ago when you didn't have access to as many recordings and as many versions and you didn't know how people were playing in new york if you were in kiev uh now it's all mushed together right yeah i mean yeah i i, I definitely think that the, the 
proliferation of, of players uh, worldwide has kind of created that that sense that it's becoming harder to discern uh, one player from another and their sounds and their tones. Um, also, like we're talking about, uh, you made a point uh, a while back about portamento, uh, glissandos, and slides. And oh yeah, can d- describe what those are, but but just d- define those terms. But before you say what what you're about to say, yeah. So a glissando would be, I guess, you know, uh, call it a, a in English a, a, a slide, right? And and, and how they uh, are able to uh, uh, a musician like Heifetz would use it, and it's a very effective uh, if for emphasis on certain phrasing or certain notes. Yeah, how you um, connect two and, notes. And uh, as well, which is kind of uh, uh, the same one, you know, one note sliding to another. Um, and there's so many different ways. Like if you heard singing between, yeah, singing between. <laughs> if you hear, if you hear like Chrysler, <laughs> Chrysler would use a different way than um, Heifetz, and so. Today, you know, a lot of these things, people, players today would think of it as being a little bit too old sounding, you know, or, or, or they're just, I, I feel that the players would say, well, it's it's not, you know, it's, it's not in, 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 in the style of the times. Uh, yeah, but today. if you looked at it, actually, I remember uh, Mark uh, Steinberg used to, to play recordings from like the early 1900s uh, with some fantastic violinists who studied with, you know, Schumann and, uh, and all these. Um, Our. No, no, our, no, but like from the, the, the Oh, school. you mean like Joachim. Um, and Joachim and all these, uh, you know, these greats. And it was a completely different world. I mean, it kind of blew my mind that, um, you know, the, the glissandos, the, the slides, uh, you call the, 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 the schmaltiness um, mm-hmm. of it. It was, it was just a completely different world. And I, I think we kind of have gotten into more of this cookie cutter, uh, you know, if you're going into competition mode, you want to play it safe. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, unfortunately, a lot of the competitions do reward playing it safe. And I think if you have your very unique style and unique voice, um, it's not uh, interpreted in the in the right way, I would say, or in the in the effective way. I think it also depends on, like, the actual, you know, pedagogues, right? So it's just an approach to the way teachers are um, imparting their knowledge to students, you know, sometimes some teachers choose to create a cookie cutter mold uh, in each one of their students that they all sound the same. They all have the same hand positions. They all have the same vibrato. They all have the same bow speed. Uh, and some teachers, you know, they, they allow their students to show more of their individual personalities. And, and I think, you know, luckily, three of us, we've been very fortunate to study with teachers who kind of, you know, let us do, you know, within a certain framework of of technique and discipline, you know, kind of let our personality shine through, you know, over time. And, and so, um, but not everyone is, is like that. And so, you know, um, you know, it's interesting what you mentioned about the, the safe quote, safe approach to competitions, because it's something that uh, the great late conductor, Lauren Mazel, he referred to as politically correct string playing. <laughs> and, <laughs> It was like it was like the goal is let me see how few people I can offend when I go on stage, and 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 that doesn't really breed a wonderful amount of creativity if if that is your goal when you're playing the Brahms concerto. Sean, Lauren, David, you you know the name of this show is Talking Beats, and and um, we've talked about a lot of things, but not a lot of music specifically. So a lot of people are going to listen and wonder okay, these people are great, they're interesting, they're smart, they're fascinating. What the hell do they listen to? What the hell do you listen to? Oh, that's, that's a good question. 
Yeah. Well, it depends. It depends what the activity is, right? So if I'm on my Peloton bike, you know, I'm probably not going to be listening to, uh, you know, the Goldberg Variations. I'm, I'm probably going to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to have David Guetta on or, you know, uh, Word Five, right? So it, it it depends. But if I'm kind of relaxing in the morning or in the evening, yes, I'd love. I mean, you know, I I always say Vivaldi got me through uh, Princeton. You know, when I was writing my, you know, 200-page senior thesis, if I didn't have... It's getting us through coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. If I didn't have Evaldi playing, you know, while I was typing all of those pages, I probably would have lost my mind. But, um, you know, it, it, it I depends. I mean, for me, it's strictly Cardi B. Fantastic masterpiece. Um, I, I, I'm deeply touched by the... <laughs> it's the number one song in the I don't I don't know about you, Daniel, but um, you know. I would say Vivaldi's a very important composer to me. <laughs> let, let me make a plug for Vivaldi because there's this weird dislike of Vivaldi in circles both musicians and non musicians, and he is one of the great composers of all time. I, I do not understand the, the dislike for Vivaldi, and, and uh, it's always bothered me. I mean, put on one piece, uh, and it's just brimming with originality and character. Well, and, and you know, if there weren't a Vivaldi, Bach would definitely not have uh, been Bach. You know, he, he spent his, you know, a good part of his education and music copying scores of Vivaldi, and, and in fact, many of the pieces that he wrote for, let's say, a couple, you know, four pianos is, is kind of a, a, a riff on, on Vivaldi's concertos. So, you know, you know, they say Vivaldi wrote the same concerto 600 times. I kind of fundamentally disagree with that. I, I, I do think that, you know, Vivaldi was a game changer. He was. Uh, and there's something about there's something in, 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 about the joy that Vivaldi brings to, to music that in the same way, if you look at, let's say, a Wayne T. Bode painting, you know, it just makes you happy. And there are very few composers that can do that consistently. Um, as Vivaldi does. So Vivaldi's amazing. You know, if we're also, we, you know, we've been watching kind of Netflix more recently. If, you, if you're listening to, if you're, you know, watching, let's say, The Crown, which we've been obsessed about uh, recently, um, Hans Zimmer wrote the, the theme music to, to that. Or if you're taking, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the movie Arrival, you know, Max Richter is a great, you know, living composer. And his music is, is music that we love listening or to. Philip Glass. Philip Glass. I mean, some of, some of the great, oh yeah, Pride and Prejudice, Dario Marinelli. So, you know, there's so many great living composers that that I tend to listen, you know, when, when we're listening to film scores or, or, or series, TV series, um, you know, they're producing wonderful music as well. So, you know, on another side, you know, we, we love listening to, let's say, Turkish or Iranian classical music. That That is also, a, you know, very you know, fascinating um, uh, music to, to, to hear and for the first time. Or Arabic, uh, or Arabic music, music. Because we, we kind of feel like we're, we're just, uh, we're, we're growing yeah. up. Um, and we also, you know, you, you know, Ila Paliwal as well, her Indian, uh, Indian just, classical music. Yeah. We just, just, oh, yeah. It's fantastic stuff. It is. It so is. it's, uh, no, but I think, I think for us, it's, you know, just, just be curious about everything, listen to everything you can, and, uh, and then you make your own, um, but we, we actually did a few um, recent uh, like videos on, on uh, the violin channel. Uh, we did the Kodai Zoltan Zoltan Kodai's uh, trio serenade, serenade, and uh, it's a really fascinating piece. It's an amazing work. 
Uh, and you can see where Bartok gets a lot of his musical inspiration. And I have from. to say, you know, Daniel, this this quarantine has also kind of gotten us to to, to learn another language. Um, we've been, uh, you know, doing our weekly Zoom uh, calls and, and videos. We've been a, t- a tutor in tutor. Japanese since April, so. Yeah, so. Really? Nihongo, thank you That pronunciation was spot on, Lauren. So you've been studying Japanese uh, over Zoom with, with, with a tutor and... Uh, and, and and Lauren, you you have had a good language capacity uh, as well, uh, quite fluent German, very good um, Italian and French as well. Uh, Sean's, Sean's, Sean's Italian. the Italian guy; Italian, I can understand yeah. that. But I think I think if we collectively, you know, pooled our our, our talents together for for, um, for for a language, you know, we we would you know get along and 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 survive in the world. Yeah, my not, mom, not my too, mom speaks uh, uh, over like five languages pretty fluently, so it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty impressive. But that's right. What's what's your favorite language? Just the sound of it, the pure sound of it. You you have to name one each each one of you. It can be the same though. I think I think Japanese is a fascinating. I think of, of the Asian languages. I do I do love listening to Japanese. It's, 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 aesthetically, it, it sounds quite beautiful. So I'm I'm going to focus on Asia. I'm going to say Japanese. You guys can do Europe. Probably <laughs> <laughs> Italian is the most yeah. like. Uh, Kind of uh, musical, uh, I would say, in terms of just like the, the and also the sign language as well that kind of goes with it. Um, so it's it's a very uh... <laughs> and and um, and also we we've talked about the beauty of of Arabic actually the the way it sounds. Lauren has, has talked about that too. So you you skipped over the Middle East, Lauren, but let's let's mention Arabic <laughs> because Daniel, we know the other side of Arabic, which is our mom getting really mad at us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we're gonna. Well, if your mom screams at you in Arabic, your C sharp was out of tune. <laughs> no, no, we, we don't really uh, know, know Arabic, but uh, <laughs> the thing with Arabic, I mean, we, we visit the Middle East several times, and each country has its own dialect. So if you go to Morocco, it's That's totally different. different than uh, than Iraq or or Jordan. Yeah, um, or Egypt. And, or Egypt, or Egypt is like the high Arabic. Yeah, the standard, you know, Arabic that people teach. Well, yeah. Well, where is the what? What is the the high Arabic? What what is 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 this the the most traditional, elegant in in Egypt or or what? I guess yeah. there's certain formalities that they say in in, in Egypt that that they um, words and phrases that are not said in you know if if you're in Syria or sure. Lebanon. Um, but I think each each country obviously was influenced by uh, outside culture as well. And uh, for instance, Morocco. With you know the French influence and a lot and of Berber. French, oh. and the Berber yeah, the Berber language. So there's just so many different uh, uh, you know uh, ethnic dialects, and dialect languages, and 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 just just so I can point to uh, uh, point to something here that that sort of illustrates exactly why I was correct in the beginning. Look what we're talking about. We're not. Uh, you know, this th- this wasn't planned. There was like someone said to me, what are you going to talk about with the Carpenters? I said, are you kidding? I can talk about anything. This is the easiest interview in the world <laughs> because... That's a good indicator of yourself as well, Daniel. I mean, it's... I knew that, that whatever happened, if I asked you about Heifetz or I asked you about the different versions of Arabic, it would still be interesting. And that's why that's why I wanted to talk to you. Um, and because you your background and the and the culture and the curiosity... It all it all morphs together, yeah, and also to to respect all cultures and, and religions, and and to to really see that that music really is kind of this universal language that is very neutral, uh, especially with everything that's going on today. I keep on saying like there has to be a lot more 
kind of civility and 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 peace because you know I, I think we're where we're kind of heading right now and what everything that's going on, it's just, you know, we it's, just, we, it's a very unsettling feeling, you know, not just with the, vi- the virus, but just, you know, uh, seeing, you know, civic, civic unrest and everything going on and it, it, worldwide. I mean, it's not just America is kind of a microco- microcosm for the world. And you're seeing a lot of countries and places that are in a lot of turmoil right now. And this is exactly why what, what you're talking about, both of you is exactly why, I have extremely diverse people on this show. You, you'll see everybody from from the most famous doctors and scientists to political commentators all across the spectrum. And why do I ask all of them about music? It's not because I think each one is a music expert, but everybody loves music, and, and it could bring someone who feels totally differently about everything if someone who you hate everything about says, well, I love Motown, and it's your favorite kind of music, suddenly... I've created commonality through music. Yeah, it, it, it does, and, and it has that effect of, of um, you know, tune, you could kind of tune out the noise of what's going on, either with politics or the uh, uh, economy. You know, economy or just the, the, the malaise that's going on with this the actual actually, virus. Actually, I would say that, you know, musicians right now, entertainers, musicians, you know, one good thing I think that's going to come out of this is that, you know, as we're, you know, and I say this looking at, at the, the tech, the NASDAQ and the tech stocks uh, right now, we're you know, today. we're, we're no, it's, it's a good opportunity to buy more. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're living in a world that is go, that is moving towards automation and it's moving towards, robotics and and you know 3d printing and genomics and, yeah. and ar and nanotechnology yeah. the thing about what we do as as musicians what you do as a musician is that that is something that cannot be automated right that is that is a, a an industry that is a, a a talent a profession that you can't just simply there is a difference between putting on a midi file and listening to you know an orchestra that's created from uh, from a computer versus a live orchestra or or live music or live entertainment, and I think you know that is one of the benefits I think that's going to come out of this is that a lot of you know service sector you know if you look at automated cars and, and self driving cars um, you know that's going to decimate a whole industry of of drivers right potentially in the next five to ten years, but on the flip side you know. Uh, if you're a musician who've been who's been honing their craft for for decades, um, that's not necessarily going to um, to go out the window, right? You, there is a um, there is a potential to keeping these jobs alive and and to continue making great music and inspiring. People. Although everything does sound the same on a Zoom call. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but 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 let's face it, it I, I haven't met a robot that can ask the kind of questions that I do. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, Daniel. You're not going to be taken away from your Call job. Call that forced modesty, Daniel. Forced modesty. <laughs> but so, I think but the, you, you just touched upon it. it. This is the entrepreneurial system, uh, system yeah. that we, we definitely need today. Like We need more people like yeah, you. It's called to, pivoting, right? Yeah. And this is exactly what you're doing. You're seeing that, okay, the, Louis, you know, the New Orleans Symphony is not, is not in session right now. It probably won't be starting the season until January and February. However, in, in the interim, if, during this time, you have the connections, you have the know-how to p- produce a fantastic podcast, a fantastic radio show, and host amazing people and uh, spread kind of this e- intelligentsia 
And you're doing that, right? You've pivoted temporarily, maybe, maybe more permanently, we don't know, but yeah. you've pivoted I, to this, to this alternative career, I right? I think people need to realize that it's, it's not only about music anymore. And, and there are just so many more, more things in, in the world that are going on that, um, I, I wouldn't say that are more important, but that should definitely be seen. Okay, that and, is a, it's an evolving world right now and, and things are going to be rapidly changing in the next few years with technology mm-hmm. and, I think people are be, you know, beginning to see that just the, the the narrative and just the paradigm has kind of is going to be shifting very much from a more traditional way that we've you know you know interacted how we've you know listened to music everything is going to be changing and what's going to happen I think is that the technology is going to uh, have to ad- adapt and and quickly. Um, you know, in industries like the music industry, like uh, the performing arts and, and ways that we have traditionally done things, th- that, that industry itself is going to have to modify itself in order to and innovate, and innovate in order to stay, you know, stay around. So, and let's see, let's see if it's able to do that. But, but meanwhile, because, because you've, you've painted, well, not pessimistic, but I think you're painting a realistic picture, you brighten up our day a little bit and, and tell us it is um, each of you in your own words why why do we need music right now more than ever you know what why should who's ever listening to this podcast finish the interview and then go put on a Brahms or whatever symphony what what, what does music bring to our lives I feel you know if we didn't have music getting through this COVID uh, you know entire lockdown I mean we've been in Miami Florida for the last six months uh, we came uh, seven months wow um, you know, we, we came here in March with our 97-year-old grandmother, and, you know, we wanted to keep her safe because she was living in, in, in Long Island, and we said there's no way, um, you know, we're going to have our grandmother uh, kind of be on her own. Um, so we all came on a, a plane. We all, you know, we basically just came to the apartment we uh, we saw the uh, few days before, and, and we just said, you know what, this is going to be home. This is going to be... Um, our base for the for the next you know a uh, few months but we had no idea this was going to turn into a uh, <laughs> like your lockdown and i think because i i was with you i was with you just so everybody know I, I was with you we were abroad as you mentioned earlier in south america and i remember I, I was looking at the map with david one day and i said look china iran italy those are the big hotspots and 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 who who knew uh that that not only was the virus already in the states, it was it was widespread because we were saying Iran, China, Italy. What a strange combination of countries. Uh, obviously, it, it had originated in in a market in in Wuhan, and, and suddenly here you are uh, locked up in a Miami condo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, we're we're very lucky. You know, the the days before we were in New York, and we actually attended a few gala events, and and a few people at the gala who hugged us, and you know, and, and gave us big. Uh, yeah, they, door, later on, they, they realized they, they were positive. They actually had COVID. And and so we we basically wow. feel like we're we're just basically counting our blessing right now that that we we got out and, and we were unharmed in that mm-hmm. process because you know it would have been an absolute disaster if we we gave that to our grandmother. Um, but we realized that music has kind of like kept us sane throughout these these months. And and if we didn't have it, if we didn't make these um, these videos for the Violent Channel, if we didn't make these videos for our temple that we're doing called Nidre and a couple of other you know pieces and actually have a, a goal and 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 a purpose. Um, we probably wouldn't make it uh, through because at the end of the day, we realize 
you can have as much money in the world in your bank account and you everyone is in the same position you're not we're not leaving um this place we're not going off on you know nice adventures um and as much as our, our trip to patagonia with you know the salome orchestra or the the members the principal members of the salome orchestra um we realized that you know we to never take those those trips for granted i i i think we're we're always going back to kind of the the beginning and what made us who we are today and we don't take these things for granted and i think that's one of the reasons we've kind of had a good foundation and uh, it's not a materialistic foundation it just we realized that we just wanted to 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 amount to something to get us to the to the to the mode that that we could finally afford the violin that we've always dreamed of it's to, to afford um, you know, getting up on stage and playing without a fear, a fear in the in the world. And I think, um, you know, we're just incredibly blessed that that we made the right decision ten years ago to start a business in tandem with our, our music career and and get into something that we've absolutely fell in love with uh, since we were. You know, uh, Sean was obsessed with instruments since the age of ten. I mean, he literally knew every violin and the every name of every Stradivarius, um, like when he was eleven years old. And every dealer would completely be baffled when a, a little kid would be coming into the, the shop and see a Strad and say, oh, yeah, that's Spivako's violin. And they were like, who are you working for? I mean, this is when Sean was 11 years old. So I think it's... Um, I mean, they, 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 they thought he was like a, a, a dressed-up Russian spy or something. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Right, right. exactly. He was a violin spy. So, so I think they, they still do. They, we were still, uh, you know, that, that guys. But I mean, I think, you know, but to be quite honest, Daniel, I think this is one of the reasons we're... We're just incredibly grateful to to have gone to uh, into a path that yes, I mean, money aside, it's great. You know, you have all these um, these these materialistic things, but at the end of the day, there's nothing like music. I mean, there's nothing like going up in front of uh, thousands of people and performing, and you know, and and memorizing, and the struggle to get up on stage, and and how many hours, how many tens of thousands of hours we you know combined um, that took us to get to that moment, to get to the the, the moment of of like pure bliss when you're playing up on stage and, mm. and really just, just focus in. And I think that's something that, that maybe it sets us uh, kind of uh, on a, a unique path. Um, and I think we're just kind of getting started. And I, I, I think, um, and making news of course with you um, and the team is, is awesome. And we can't wait to, to have more of those adventures together. I can't wait either. I'm going to, at some point have you on again, conduct the interview in person and we'll make a video of it. And right now, the the audio is the best we can do. And Sean, David, and Lauren Carpenter, I thank you extremely sincerely. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Daniel. Stay safe. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.